Welcome to Christ is the Cure with Nick Campbell. Here we bring you theology, apologetics, and a resource for growth on the basis of Scripture alone. Sit back and enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is episode 48, and today we have a special guest, Nathan Davis. But before we begin, I want to let you know that this episode was brought to you by our patrons. So thank you very much for our patrons who support this ministry, and you can become a patron too at patreon.com slash christisthecure for as little as $1 a month, which is $12 a year, which is cheaper than Hulu, Netflix, and all that jazz. But anyway, they keep this show ad-free and keep it free for all of you to listen to. But let's get into it because we have a longer episode today. Our special guest caller today is Nathan Davis, and Nathan has been in the United States Air Force for seven years and is currently a student at Liberty University to earn a bachelor's in history. So, Nate, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in textual criticism? So, we're, we're on? <laughs> yeah, we're on. Sorry, my bad. Uh, all right. Um, so, uh, I'm uh, 25 years old. Uh, I've uh, been an airman in the Air Force for about seven years now, uh, currently attending school at Liberty University to earn my BS in history. Uh, so that's just uh, a little bit about myself there. Um, if we need more information, we can delve into that later on. Um, so uh, before we start, I want to put out a disclaimer that uh, the views that um, are expressed by me are not those of uh, the U.S. Air Force. So I just want to be upfront about that so that no one would twist that into anything else. Um, and I'm currently studying uh, to become a history professor and uh, perhaps minor in textual uh, studies of ancient texts. Um, what I would say would really got me into textual criticism was uh, throughout my career, uh, I've come across a lot of um, atheists that I've worked with, and uh, they would posit things like, we can't possibly know what the Bible has said because it's been edited so many times or it's corrupted hopelessly beyond belief. Yeah. And uh, in the early days of my young faith, uh, that, uh, of course, um, really uh, shook me. And I would go home and just kind of stare at the wall and just wonder if this was even true or not. But once they forced me to dig into history and look at the transmission of the text, my, my doubts simply vanished away. Uh, because the textual transmission and the preservation of the Bible that we have in our hands today is uh, absolutely uh, unparalleled. Um, Daniel Wallace, uh, a new, probably the leading New Testament scholar of our day, says when it comes to the biblical texts in that that are currently surviving, uh, we have an embarrassment of riches. Like just to give you an example, we have. I think it's 5,830-some-odd Greek manuscripts. Right. Uh, for Aristotle, we probably have about 10. So uh, we have so much uh, wealth to work with. Um, and having, having examined the history that we so— the text that we so treasure as Christians, it's made me thankful to God that he preserved his word in the way that he did uh, by leaving behind so much evidence to compare— and come to conclusions on. Yeah, um, in terms of what you were saying about atheists being on the opposite end of that, um, I used to do the same thing to Christians whenever I would talk to them. I would always talk about, you know, well, the Catholic Church just pieced together the parts they liked, kind of like what you see with Uthman and Islam. You kind of assume that they just 
took what they wanted and they burned the rest and kind of got rid of it. And they just made copies and there's, there's changes and edits and revisions. And of course that's all misleading as, as you kind of dove into there a little bit. Um, it really is. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, we live in a soundbite culture and people will hear that. Um, uh, what did I lose you there? No, you're good. Oh, um, people will hear, uh, different misinformation, you know, just, oh, copies of copies of copies, hopelessly corrupted beyond belief. But if you, if you just do just a baseline surface scraping of the, the evidence, all you have to do is say, okay, name one. Yeah. And then oftentimes you'll find that they're just simply parroting what they've heard. Uh, but, you know, we don't want to use the knowledge we gain to just use it as a club, but rather to to challenge their beliefs and, and make them see that, hey, the, the New Testament is unparalleled. Right. And that, and that was one of the things that you'll, you'll always find, especially with, with atheists, if I can throw that in there, because I feel like I have some kind of say in that. But um, it, it's mostly confirmation bias. You find what you want to find and you run with it because that that's what you do whenever you're defending a position that, you know, you're trying to force upon other people really. And that's, that's really kind of what it seemed to be like for me. It was like, well, you know, you, you guys don't know what the Bible actually said, but, um, so do you think that a basic knowledge of textual criticism is important for Christians generally speaking? And if so, why? I get often asked, um, so I'm, I have kind of a, a Twitter and Instagram social media presence where I have been asked by people, like, are you saying that I have to study Hebrew and Greek to know the Bible? And my answer, let me first start off by saying that, yes, we do have reliable English translations, and yes, you can trust them. There are bad translations out there, and there are sub substandard ones, but um, of the, the ones that I typically recommend to people, ESV, NASB, you know, KJV, uh, New, New King James— we can trust what's there, but I feel that if one were to take the time to study the Bible in its original languages, I feel you would have a lot more answers uh, for the assertions, uh, false assertions that people throw at you, and also to fact check the translation that you're reading here. Right. You know, for example, it's like if War and Peace was originally written in Russian. We have English translations of War and Peace uh, by Leo Tolstoy today, but uh, the only way we can know for certain if if the English translators of War and Peace translated accurately, we need to go back to the Russian source uh, to see that. Right. So I feel that it, um, the amount of time we spend doing worthless things like watching TV uh, the in the... Uh, exorbitant amount that we do i feel that that time could be used better to do things such as studying greek and hebrew yeah um, and also to, uh, to add further on to that uh how would you respond if someone came up to you and just you know said um do you know that there are four hundred thousand variants in the new testament i you know it would would you as a christian um you the listener be able to have a response to that so uh, yes, I do believe that it is inescapable in postmodern America to know the history of our sacred text and how we got it, because 
we can't afford to live in our little theological bubbles anymore. We are getting challenged day by day, and the advent of the internet has put so much misinformation out there that's simply going unchallenged because Christians do not have an answer, unfortunately. Yeah, um, and even with that, even in terms of learning the original languages, there are a lot of nuances and things you just can't pick up in English that, you know, the original languages have, and even in the little bit of Greek I know, you can still see those nuances, in it, and it really is an amazing thing to see the Bible as it was written to the original audiences. So that was something, and of course, as apologetic, as you, as you noted, is important as well, especially since they are diving into those subjects a little bit enough to where you have to know at least the basics, in my opinion. Right. I'm not saying that you need to become fluent in just, you know, the an ancient first century Greek speaker, but... Right. Like, for example, it, someone asked me, uh, what what can you tell me, like a little t- fact from the Greek uh, that uh, I could not know in English? So in 2 Timothy 3.16, some translations of the Bible will say, you know, all scripture is inspired by God. Right. Well, that Greek word that underlines inspired is the- theonoustos. So it's a, a combination of the words uh, theo and noustos. So theo is the Greek word for God, and noustos is breath. So what it, uh, Paul is essentially saying is all, all scripture, or graphe, is the uh, breath of God. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, that was the first occurrence of that Greek word, as far as we know. So Paul essentially it's, made it's up that word. It's the only uh, occurrence, and I, I may be wrong in saying this, and, and someone can correct me if I, I am, but I think that Paul if I read correctly, coined that term. Yeah, that, that's what I understand too, if I am if I remember my research correctly. Yeah, that, that was essentially a, a Paul word. Right, so there, there, that is um, just one example of, uh, if you just look at inspired, you know, it, it's not that, you know, oh, uh, you know, like I watched the, the movie Rudy and I, you know, want to go play at Notre Dame. No, it's, yeah. it's uh, all scripture is uh, breathed out uh, I think the NIV rendered it best. It's it's breathed out by God. When we read the scriptures, we can metaphorically uh, breathe in uh, the divine uh, revelation that God has given us. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I like the way that you put that. It's not just like inspiration to go do something. It's not just going to inspire you to write a song. It's not your muse. It's, it's God breathed. It's spoken his word, and it's going to move um, in terms of the Holy Spirit, and it has power behind it. I mean, we see that throughout all of Scripture. Absolutely. Um, so how, how would you explain textual criticism to the listeners? So first off, um, there, there's misinformation even in this, because uh, when people hear the word uh, criticism, they they think of a negative connotation behind that, and they think of a person just kind of standing over the text and and criticizing what's written. That's not what textual criticism means. So just to give you a a basic definition, textual criticism is the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. This is done for any ancient work. Uh, So, for example, uh, in high school, most of us read Homer's Odyssey. Well, we don't have the original of Homer's Odyssey. What we have are 643 surviving manuscripts of that ancient work by Homer. And uh, ancient uh, textual um, 
scholars have to look at uh, Homer's Odyssey of the surviving manuscripts and determine of what's left what Homer most likely originally wrote and what he didn't. Right. Well, the same thing um, is uh, textual scholars of the New Test- Testament compare uh, the surviving manuscripts of you know what we've found and unearthed in our history, and they just use uh, methodologies, uh, you know, internal, external evidence, church father citations, uh, things of that nature, uh, to come to an airtight conclusion as as reasonably as possible to determine what the authors originally wrote and what they didn't. And you know, uh, this may be news to to some Christians, but, you know, we didn't have a a single codex that, you know, all the apostles put their stamp of approval on, and then it's just been safely kept in a locked box down through the ages, and then that's what we translate from. No, it it, um, was hand-copied down through the centuries, and even we read in early church fathers that they had to make decisions on variants within a text. So, uh, textual criticism is just uh, the way of getting back to uh, the original. Right. And uh, excuse me. So for and if I'm not mistaken, the the first example you gave of looking at the text and criticizing it, that would be considered higher textual criticism, correct? Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with like, like um, higher, lower, um, but I simply stated that because there's some people who think that um, right. they're just standing over the text and saying like, oh, it just couldn't possibly mean that. And, and you know, like, oh, like, or if they disagree with the doctrinal, you know, like, oh, I disagree with the Trinity, so I'm just going to remove anything yeah. to the of Christ. No, that's, if, if that were to be undertaken, it would be noticed like a, a you know, a, a flame in the night. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken, like the proper like historical methodology is the lower textual criticism and the actual critique or criticizing of the text in that sense is higher, but I'm not entirely sure. I just want to say that that's, I, I can't remember it's top of my head. Yeah, there, there are different uh, two schools of thought. So, you know, uh, up um, in, in 1516, uh, the uh, Dutch scholar Erasmus, who is also a Catholic priest, he printed the first um, Greek New Testament in 1516, and he only had about half a dozen manuscripts uh, to do so, and he had to engage in textual criticism. Right. Uh, because we know that in uh, he made five editions, and his first two editions did not include uh, the Comma Johannium at 1 John 5, 7. So for those that are unaware of that, that is the... Uh, reading uh for there are three that bear record in heaven the the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one uh that was not found in the first two editions of erasmus because the text that he had did not include it so well and if i'm not mistaken uh, too uh even like john calvin he had uh in his commentaries um some words to say about different greek renderings and variants and various things like that so you, you can and Martin Luther when he um, if you read how he translated the Luther Bible he of course had to make decisions uh, right. in regards to the text as well that he felt uh, was what Paul or John or Peter originally wrote so yeah it, it's this is not 
some new um, esoteric school of thought that originated 120 years ago. This has happened since the cradle, really, with Irenaeus and Origen and, and the early church fathers. Yeah, I, th I think I've spoken to some people who kind of think of it as, oh, this was within the rise of uh, humanistic intellectualism. No, it, it's been around for, for a long time now. Um, it's not just something that was invented in America in the 1800s or something like that. Right, um, and, and simply the, the reason why uh, me and Nick are just um, putting this out here is because we as Christians don't need to be afraid of the facts. That there's nothing that happened in our history that, that should cause us uh, concern. Uh, I understand first hearing it can be, well, I never knew this or was taught this, but uh, knowing the facts about our text uh, should give us uh, reassurance because we know how we got it. Right. It, it, no, it didn't. It did not uh, fall from heaven and golden plates. You know, it, it uh, was hand copied down through the ages. And we'll get into um, debunking this idea of it was just one stream, uh, which I believe will come in the next question. So, yeah, I was about to say, uh, well, let's just go ahead and go into that. So about the textual criticism being intimidating or frightening, how would you reassure listeners? So when, when people, you know, there, there are a lot of Orthodox uh, Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and, and I do too as well, uh, but uh, when they hear textual variants, you know, and uh, differences in readings, they, they all of a sudden think that, oh, well, we can't, you know, God didn't preserve his word. You know, he, he said that he would uh, provide it for us and give it to us, uh, but... Our, our faith needs to also recognize that we as Christians do not live in a fantasy world, but we live in a world that is uh, consistent with the reality and the historical facts of how our text came to be. Uh, so just uh, starting out, uh, how do we define a variant? Uh, so uh, a variant is any place among the manuscripts where there is a variation in wording, uh, including word order, omission, or addition of words, and spelling differences. So, for example, the Greek uh, name John, uh, Ioannin, uh, in some manuscripts it's spelled with uh, two news, so two, two N's in English, and in other manuscripts it's only spelled with one. That's a variant because it's a spelling order. Uh, and let, let me uh, attempt to just give you the facts uh, for your reassurance here. So when you examine the 400,000 variants, so there's 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament, there's 400,000 variants. That comes out to about, you know, two and a half variants per word, if that's all we knew. And if that's all we knew, that, that would seem frightening and shocking because no other ancient work in the world has that many variants. But the reason why there's so many is because we have so many manuscripts. Right. You know, if you have only two manuscripts of Socrates and there's two variants, well, that's because you only have two manuscripts. But we have 5,800. But of those 400,000 variants, uh, you will at first find that 99% of those 400,000 variants are slips of the pen, a transposition of words, which words are um, reversed in order and things of that nature. And then there's uh, most of those errors you could not even translate uh, into English. 
Hmm. Now, there's there's four different kinds uh, of variants. Uh, oh, and another thing that I want to say that it's not the quantity of the differences in the text, but rather the quality. And if 99% of those 400,000 variants are simply just throwaway variants that do not have any uh, meaning on the text at all, that, that rather um, sheds a lot more light on those 400,000 variants, don't you think? Right. Yeah. So, so now we're down to 4,000. So so we originally, you know, someone said, hey, there's 400,000 variants. Well, 99% of those are rather meaningless and throwaway, as I would say. Um, but of the four kinds of variants, uh, the first one uh, is uh, neither meaningful nor viable. So what that means is it has no impact on the meaning of the text, and it's not viable because we know that it was not uh, based on the textual evidence that it was not originally what the author wrote. And these are just, you know, misspellings of words, um, you know, different, um, like if they missed a conjunction, like the Greek word for chi, and, you know, we, we can recognize that, okay, you know, maybe that scribe was having a rough day at work, and it, it just, you know, error of sight, and he missed it. So, but thankfully, we have, you know, we don't have just one manuscript, we have 5,000 you know, 800, and then of the different books, we have so many hundreds to compare with. Well, and then we have uh, the, over that, a million quotations by... The uh, early church fathers. Exactly. And then also, that's not to mention the Latin. There's over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There's uh, Coptic and uh, Sahidic, Boharic, uh, other languages as well. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Uh, the second one is uh, going to be a viable but not meaningful. So we talked earlier about how uh, John uh, was misspelled. So there are um, some ancient manuscripts of John that have differences in how John's name is uh, spelled. And so we can look at that and say, okay, this does go back pretty far, uh, but does how John's name spelled have any bearing on the gospel or any cardinal doctrine of Christianity? No, it does not. Uh, because it, it's it's one of those things that's a throwaway variant. It, it's a, it's a variant that we can deem as most likely being original, but it's throwaway because it has no meaningful impact on the text whatsoever. Uh, does that yeah. make sense? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and and then uh, the la uh, last two, there's going to be a meaningful uh, but not viable. So these are variants that do change the meaning of the text, but could not possibly be original. So uh, do you have uh, your Bible with you there? Well, um, yeah. What, what are we looking at? Um, let me get mine, too. Uh, if you go to um, Hebrews 2.9, could you... Um, and and what, uh, what translation will you be using? Uh, ESV. Uh, yeah, uh, go ahead uh, and read that, and I'll go get mine. So Hebrews 2.9, But we see him, for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so that um, the, the variant that we're going to be looking at there is uh, grace of God. So uh, in Hebrews 2.9, if you look at uh, 
so the the scholarly um, critical text that I often use is the Nestle Alon 28th edition. And uh, this came out in 2012. They're working on the 29th edition. So it's this simply reflects the work of biblical scholars who have just laid out the variant readings and come to a decision by committee on what they feel uh, is the most airtight uh, reading for a text. So in Hebrews 2.9, there is a variant, a late variant, that says, um, so the grace of God, that is a kariti theo, but there are two late uh, codices, uh, 0243 and 1739, that read uh, chorus theo, apart from God. So the reading uh, in Hebrews 2.9, if, if that variant was original, it would instead read, let me turn there. Um, so uh, it would read, because of the suffering of death, so that apart from God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, uh, there's been different theories as to how that reading arose, because uh, chorus and, and, and charis are just a one-letter difference. So charis being grace and chorus being apart from. Uh, but the thing is, is that uh, seven, uh, the Codice 1739 and 0243, just to give you an idea of the age, uh, 0243 is dated at the 10th century, and the... Uh, manuscript 1739 is also dated in the 10th century. Right. So that's a thousand years after Hebrews was written. Uh, that That is an example of a variant that is meaningful because there's a big difference between by the grace of God and apart from God. Uh, but as we can see, the, the textual evidence for uh, that uh, reading is very uh, scarce. So that's an example of a, a meaningful variant, uh, but not a viable one. And the other one that I, I wanted to briefly look at is uh, Luke 6.22. So in Luke 6.22, uh, it reads, uh, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the, of the Son of Man. There is one uh, late uh, codex, uh, it's uh, 2882, it does not have the phrase uh, on the account of the Son of Man. But it, it is so uh, late, uh, if I, let me get the exact date of it, uh, 2882 comes... <laughs> I think I think it's well over also uh, a thousand years uh, as well. Hmm. But but the reason why this is a meaningful variant, um, if it if it were original, uh, is because of this. I'm trying to see. Okay, uh... Yeah. So it so it's it's well over a thousand years after. So uh, if if the verse simply read. You know, blessed are you if people hate you, exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil. Then that means that anybody that has ever been mocked or ridiculed is blessed, and that's you know that's not um, an orthodox teaching of scripture. Right. Uh, it so 
but because that's um, and there's there's you know we if we look at um, twenty eight eighty two uh, we can try to determine you know how that got left out you know it could be a scribe skipped the line you know by error of sight or things of that nature but uh, because it's found so late it couldn't possibly be the original so those are just two examples of a um, meaningful variance but since they're so late and the textual evidence is so so scarce uh, it couldn't possibly be the original uh, of the author of Luke and Hebrews. Right. Uh, so that's just, um, those are uh, two examples there. And the last one, oh, and then, of course, First uh, John 5, 7, which uh, you've talked about before. Um, so First John 5, 7, I would categorize as a meaningful variant, but not viable. Um, and you've talked about on your show before that uh, if your doctrine of the trinity hinges on a single text of scripture it's un- it's evident that you do not understand the doctrine to begin with right because no no doctrine of christianity hinges on the viability of a single variant so if just to give you an example if uh we had one single manuscript that said uh jesus christ was born of a virgin but that manuscript had variants um that did not let's say it didn't have the greek word parthenon for virgin or if it was just riddled you know with with um other variants that would cause concern because then we would have an essential doctrine that we profess that hinges on whether a variant is original or not right but the thing is is that First uh, John five seven did not appear in any Greek manuscript until about the fourth century, and uh, I believe it's Codex Ravensius. Uh, and we already talked about how Erasmus didn't have it in his first two editions because it just simply was not found. Yeah. Uh, they uh, the scholars have you know they think that it was a, a fourth century Latin commentary on the Spirit, the Water, and the Blood. And just he kind of allegorized it into the Trinity. And uh, what we find is that scribes didn't want, you know, footnotes to be lost. So they would just put it in the text. And then next thing you know, it's just gone down through the ages and it found its way into the Latin Vulgate. Yeah. Um, so it, in, ter- in, terms of, in terms of all that, too, the, the same can go to say we, we talked about um, John 1 1. If we base all of Jesus's deity on John 1 1 and we have. The Sahidic Coptic that says a God instead of Jesus was the uh, was God, then we have a problem. So that just goes along with that. No doctrine hinges on one text, like like Nate was saying. And um, uh, another thought before before we go too far into more uh, variants was that in terms of um, inspiration of the text and, and infallibility and inerrancy, the the main position is that inerrancy infallibility are in the autographs, that is the original documents. And so textual criticism seeks to find the reading of the original, which is what this is all about. And I don't know if that was said here, but I think there's a misconception that... Um, that base- we have infallible translations, which exactly. that would create a problem because then God would have to come along 16 or 17 or 2,000 years later and re-inspire a right. translation. 
game to make an infallible text. And that's what you see from people from the other side, too. They're like, well, you have all these different versions of the Bible, so how do you know it's God's Word? Well, we hold that the autographs were the original inspired writings. So that's what textual criticism seeks to point out here. So I know we're going to talk about some variants. Um, I Well, just, just, some, just some closing uh, points here. I wanted to read a... Um, an excerpt from James White uh, in regards to Ehrman's, uh, Bart Ehrman's claim that, so Bart Ehrman believes that because there's 400,000 variants, God could not have possibly um, inspired and preserved his word because if he had done so, he would have uh, kept there from being a single variant, which that, that also raises the question is, if that were how God preserved it down to the ages, what was the means by which he did so? You know, if if a scribe was about to, you know, um, put uh, apart from God instead of by the grace of God, did an angel suddenly appear and say, don't write that, you know, or did God, you know, make a scribe burst into flames if he, you know, put put in a variant? Yeah. Uh, but we don't find uh, evidence of that in history. Rather, um, what I believe, uh, so we start with the question, uh, did God preserve his word? And if he did so, how? And I believe that because the gospel was so important, you had the authors, the original authors of scripture, write uh, these inspired uh, letters and gospels, and they sent them global. So there was not one single little community that held the text, but rather you had uh, the Coptics copying scripture down in, in Egypt. You had the Armeni- Ar- Armenians and the Georgians, and then you, of course, had the Western text with the, the Latin transcribers. And then, of course, around Byzantium, uh, where Greek continued to be the speaking language, you had the copy of the Greek. So you had this multifocality everywhere and not just one little stream. And I think that the reason, you know, I, I believe that God allowed that to happen so that uh, there wouldn't be this claim of, you know, well, only one group held the text, and therefore they get, they made wholesale changes at will. Right. And we just, we don't see that. Yeah, that's what that's probably one of my favorite uh, uh, arguments from James White, too, as well. Because I, I immediately think of Uthman and Islam whenever I think of that kind of controlled documents and, and all the conspiracies about the Catholic Church controlling the text. That's what I think of. I think of one group, like, making what they wanted to say and pushing it forward, but that's not what we see with this, and we have so many that there's no way that that could possibly happen. And right, so it's, and, it's and awesome. um, just to read an excerpt from uh, James White, he, he said, uh, my response to uh, Ehrman's postulate uh, is the same as my response to uh, my King James-only friends. And we're, we're not going to get into the issue of King James-onlyism today, because I know that um, Nick has... Uh, definitely gone into that in depth in the past, but uh, on one side, let's just say you have Ehrman who says there's 400,000 variants. We can't possibly know, you know, what God said and he didn't preserve his word. Then you have the other side where you ascribe infallibility to a translation uh, and, and not deal with the variants. So there's two different extremes there. And what we want to find is, is the balance that is consistent with the facts and, and, is also consistent with reality. So he, he writes, God has preserved his text. He has simply chosen to do so in a far more miraculous way than you would allow him to. 
It is a surface-level magic trick similar to the myth about how the Septuagint translators all translated the writings of Moses in identical words to come up with a photocopied text. Now, just to briefly, uh, so the Septuagint was an Old Testament translation of the Hebrew uh, before Christ because the, the Jews, if you read Nehemiah 8 and Ezra, they, they stopped speaking Hebrew after they went into Babylon and then the occupation of Alexander the Great and the, Ro and the Romans. Greek became the language of the day. So you had these um, translators that translated. Uh, first they did the Torah and then they did the entire Old Testament into Greek. Um, and there were, there were, believe it or not, there were some myths that came out like they had, you know, they had them in caves, and they each made their own Septuagint copy. Then they compared all the copies, and they read similar word for word. There were some legends that came down from that, which you know, the, I I personally don't believe the embellishment there. But we know that there was uh, the Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus's day, right? And so he writes, it is far more real miracle. For God to take the work of multiple authors written in multiple locations, in multiple contexts, writing to multiple audiences during a time of imperial persecution, working through the very mechanisms of history just like he did with his people in the Old Covenant, and in that process create the single most attested text of all antiquity where less than 1% of the text requires us to engage in serious examination of the sources to determine the original reading. Uh, in his last paragraph, God has done so in such a fashion that even Ehrman must admit that as far as recreating the original text, today's scholars are merely tinkering as the task is for all intents and purposes completed. 5,700 plus manuscripts, 1,500 years of transmissional history, multiple authors, the combined wrath of Rome and the Gnostics, yet we have the New Testament we possess today. That is miraculous indeed. Textual variation is merely an artifact of the mechanism of preservation. That is the textually aware believer's rejoinder to Ehrman's postulate. Right. So basically, before the advent of the printing press, when we could actually essentially photocopy uh, a text, it was all handwritten, and what is, uh, I, and I truly believe this is miraculous, that God allowed his scriptures to be published and sent global. And we only have to deal with less than 2,000 meaningful and viable variants. Right. So and, and this that, should, that is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, um, if, if you're listening, this, this shouldn't be too surprising whenever you consider what we see throughout all of scripture where— God has always used man who errs for his purposes. This is something you see all the time. Everyone, Moses erred. Peter had to be corrected by Paul. This is something that's always happened. And God just made sure that we had the way to correct the errors that may have popped up in the human hand, basically. So, Absolutely. So uh, th this is why we're talking about this. This is not something this is not intended to shake anyone's faith but i feel that if we do not talk about this you're going to hear it from an atheist at your college or an unbelieving professor and 
uh, this is the reason why we are simply sharing this is so that you will have answers uh, for when that comes up. Because oftentimes these people are just simply repeating what they've heard on TV, you know, CNN with their infinite quote unquote knowledge and or every time at Christmas when they have to release, you know, like, oh, the, the lost gospel of Jesus, you know, oh, yeah. those the things like that. It's we have answers and we do not have to be afraid of the facts because. Uh, the facts, if we come to know them, will offer us reassurance because God is a God of history and he has been sovereignly superintending his text through the ages. Right. And if there's any reassurance for the listeners, both Nate, as he expressed in the beginning of this, was struggling with it and he examined the facts and he found that he could have assurance. And I was an atheist and I examined the facts and now I'm here being a proponent of the truth as well. And so we should all be um, standing with the truth and the truth will stand for itself. And especially in the reality of everything God has given us, he is sufficient in every uh, way possible. Um, in terms of the variants, want to talk about works that people ought to uh, pick up. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in getting started in textual criticism, these are some recommendations. Um, you want to go ahead and yeah, so um, what I was examining, uh, Hebrews 2.9 and Luke 6.22 earlier, it's uh, the, the Novum Testamentum Graeci. Uh, it's the uh, Nesli Aland uh, 28th edition, so it's named that because uh, there were two uh, very big textual scholars of the 20th century, uh, Eberhard Nesli and uh, Kurt and Barbara Aland, and so that's why the text is named after them. But uh, they call this the uh, scholar's uh, text because it has— um, almost in every single verse it goes into the variants and, and including the, the meaningful and viable ones uh, and it gives you the textual evidence and, and that's one other thing also we th this isn't like you know like oh it's like hidden in the vault in Rome or something no it, it's we the amount of textual info we have available to the layman today and, and the amount of ignorance in Christendom is also mind-blowing in and of itself because we have access to the most information about our text at our fingertips, yet we are still having Christians steamrolled by just a simple assertion of, oh, there's 400,000 variants. Right. So this isn't esoteric. It's not, you know, for the scholars only. This stuff is available, you know, and I bought this text on Amazon. I think it was like 30 bucks. And it, it, yes, it will require you to just, you know, learn some basic Greek, which, hey, we have YouTube for that. You know, we have books to help you learn basic Greek just to be able to read. And then um, some other works, uh, the UBS 5, that's also the United Bible Societies in Germany, the fifth edition. Uh, that's the what most uh, translators of a Bible uh, will use. Uh, and they kind of work in conjunction with the Nestle Alon. Uh, and if you want to get into some books, you were talking earlier, um, there there was, um, so before Bart Ehrman, uh, let's just say uh, he fell away from the faith, uh, he was a student under uh, Bruce Metzger, who was probably one of the perennial uh, textual scholars of the 20th century. Uh, I believe they wrote a work called The, uh, the Textual Commentary of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure which one which one it was honestly. I don't have it saved on my my phone right now. Well, that that's um that is uh, 
a great work to just uh, it's it's not exhaustive, but he just goes into the the variants that he feels were meaningful in the New Testament text, and he he uh, draws his own conclusions from them. And um, the the only thing with that is is uh, I I think I can't remember how long um, I don't think Bruce Metzger is alive anymore, but uh, it, it is kind of dated at this point. Yeah. Uh, there's there's so many um, like uh, the King James only controversy by James White. He goes into a slew of variants and gives the textual evidence. Uh, if you want to look at uh, biblical transmission, the the question of canon by Michael Kruger, also a, a very great resource. Uh, Daniel Wallace, the books that uh, he's written. Um, I believe it's uh, can we uh, can we still trust the Bible? Um, that another uh, excellent work. Um, Nor you read uh, Norman Geisler's How We Got the Bible. Yeah, that's a pretty good one too. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's uh, again uh, just just to say you know this me and Nick are not you know these these esoteric wizards you know that that know everything. It's we just know that there are resources out there for you even as the layman. To know these things and they are available they're not hidden so yeah and if i can throw one more out there that was uh it's been kind of helpful for me um is the the comfort text commentary by philip comfort philip comfort yes yeah it breaks yeah. down the variants very simply and it, it gives you the reading in greek and english so that you can kind of examine it that way and it tells you how uh people reason through it it's it's pretty solid so that's another one but like nate's been saying the, the amount of resources we have is unbelievable and so it, at this point to be blunt ignorance is a choice and so we can we can equip ourselves and be prepared for pretty much anything nowadays we just have to make sure that we're we're being um uh being objective when we're examining things we have to be honest with ourselves we have to examine the hard stuff and we'll find that it always stands in the midst of things absolutely um so I think that we've pretty much got all the uh, – so we just wanted to kind of lay a base of just to uh, – and I know that I'm not, you know, a – I don't have a doctorate in this stuff. It's just, This is just stuff that I, I've learned from – I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of giants that have, you know, gone before me on this. But um, I'm simply saying just take my words, go and research them you know, what, prove all things and hold fast to that, which is good. So I'm simply just, you know, examine what I've told you. And then I, I have the utmost confidence that God will lead you to sound conclusions as well. Yes, sir. So, um, <clears throat> we were going to discuss some, some variants here. We'll see how many we can kind of blow through. Um, we, yeah, uh, there were a list of uh, four that we wanted to just go through briefly. And this is just simply to give you kind of a, another idea of just the differences among the, the English translations because of the textual um, evidence that we have to sift through. Right. Um, so, um, the, the first one that we wanted to discuss, which I kind of find uh, to be interesting because when I first discovered it, um, it was on a website, uh, jackchick.com. And, uh, you know, I, I, they're... They're really great at taking something and turning it into uh, an absolute catastrophic controversy. <laughs> um, to that, and I'm just putting that mildly. But 
Matt, this is where I discovered the variant at Matthew 27, uh, 16. And so we're going to look at this and then we're going to uh, talk about uh, conclusions. So, uh, Nick, do you um, have Matthew 27, 16 open in your ESV? Yeah. Um, yeah, my ESV. Uh, we're looking at yeah. 17 or 16? Um, right, 16. Or I guess it's a, both the read same. A, read Matthew uh, 27, uh, 16, and 17. Okay, let me check it out real fast. So, and they had uh, the notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when they had gathered, uh, Pilate had said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So, yeah, so, so that is the, uh, the, the majority, uh, the vast majority of the manuscripts that we have uh, read uh, Barabbas uh, in both instances. Now, uh, what I want to do is I want to read that in the 2011 edition of the NIV. So it reads, uh, at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Uh, so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Now, the the te- the text of the, the article that I had read was, look what the NIV translators did. They gave the name of your Savior to a murderer. Yeah. Now, of course, on, on reading that at first glance, you know, for, for people who have just never delved into this, that could cause, you know, just an, an outrage uh, in people unfamiliar with this stuff. But... I want to go into the facts behind why the NIV translators uh, made that decision. So first we're going to go into, I want to go into the textual evidence, and then we're going to examine the internal evidence. So what's interesting here is that uh, the Jesus reading for both um, verses 16 and 17, uh, it comes from a late 10th century codex. It's uh, Codex Corridithi. Uh, and then it also is found in uh, Family One manuscripts, uh, the uh, minuscule 700, uh, and then some uh, family of Syriac manuscripts. So at a first glance, uh, the textual evidence uh, is sparse, but also one thing to take into account is the third century church father, Origen, when he discovered that reading, what he wrote was, uh, he, he thought that the scribe was blasphemous to give that name to um, Barabbas. And he, he said that it could not possibly be original. So that uh, if that reading existed in an origins day, then uh, how it got into the 10th century, we would then ask, what text was Codex Cordithi copying? So that's the textual evidence. Now for the internal evidence. So, um, Nick, uh, would, do you think you'd be able to um, tell our listeners about how the name Jesus came to be? No. Nah. Do you know the <clears throat> etymology? I, I do, but not enough to feel confident explaining it. Well, it, it's um. So the Old Testament name, yet uh, Yehoshua or Joshua, that was Hebrew. And then uh, as the Hebrew language developed, uh, we see like in Ezra 3, uh, Nehemiah 8.17, that uh, 
it got contracted from Yehoshua to Yeshua. That was the name that Jesus was given. Now, how do we get Jesus? Well, uh, in the Greek-speaking uh, first century uh, of the day, uh, Yeshua was transliterated into Iesus. Reason being is because the Greeks don't have a ya sound in their language, and also male names do not end in the letter A. So think of Athena, you know, the, the Greek goddesses, Diana, but male names ended in an S, so Perseus, Zeus, things of that nature. So Yeshua became Iesus. So uh, when, when the apostles were walking around, if they were speaking to Jews, they would have said uh, Yeshua Mashiach or, or Jesus, Jesus Messiah. And if they were talking to Greeks, they would say Iesus Christos. So those are the two. There's, and then uh, in Latin, it became Iesus. And then uh, we followed the French J sound, and that's how we got Jesus. And then in Germany and other Germanic languages, they'll say uh, Jesus. So that's how the name Jesus came to be. But one thing a lot of people are not aware of is that Jesus was a common first century name. Uh, as you know, as I stated earlier, uh, it was he had the same name as Joshua, which which means um, salvation. And right. also in Matthew twenty one, is that you shall call him Jesus or Yeshua, uh, for he will save his people. Now um, there are other places in Scripture where people have the name Jesus. Yeah, I was going to. Uh, I was going to throw that out there too, because uh, Origen had said. Uh, his reasoning was that in the whole range of scriptures, there was no one who was a sinner called Jesus. And that was one of the notes that I put up too, because I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I was wondering about how much of the, the text he had himself, you know? Right. Um, it, and it, it, so the reason why I brought up origin is because for, um, I don't believe that this reading arose late. Uh, the conclusion I've drawn is that this was an early reading, but, you know, a, a believing Orthodox scribe could have seen that and had timidity and and perhaps, you know, some felt that that was rather crazy that, you know, our the precious name of our Savior was shared by, you know, a, a violent murderer. Yeah. So, but we read in uh, Acts 13, it says um, in verse uh, 6, when they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Yeah. Now, Bar is Aramaic for meaning son, so it was Simon, son of uh, Yeshua, or Jesus. Uh, so there, here's a man um, who is the son of a man named Jesus. Uh, in Colossians 4.11, uh, we read... Um, I have it pulled up. Do you want me to go ahead and... Yeah, go ahead and read that. So, and Jesus who is called Justice. So I'll go ahead and just go with that. Colossians 4.11a. Um, yep, there it is. Yeah. So there, there is all... Now, I think that possibly he may have gone by a, an alias for the, that reason of, you know, uh, there's no other name among... Um, uh, under heaven given among men. So he probably went by the alias uh, Eustace or Justice. 
Uh, but we see that, you know, like this that this crazy, you know, like, oh, they gave your Savior's name to a murderer. Well, there were other people in the New Testament period that had that name. Right. And also before Jesus came. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention also, the complete Jewish Bible, uh, it renders the uh, text as... Um, uh, Yeshua Baraba. So Barabbas means son of the father. Uh, uh, Abba mean, meaning father and Bar, uh, son of. Yeah. So uh, the final final uh, facts on the matter is what I find interesting that if Jesus is the original reading there, if it says, um, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ I think it it adds a dramatic flair to Matthew's narrative, stating these people chose the wrong Jesus. Definitely. They, they, so you had a a Jesus, son of the Father here, Barabbas, and then you had Jesus, the Son of God, and the people in their depravity chose Jesus Barabbas. So... Uh, that that um, as far as the NIV and the complete Jewish Bible's choice to go with that, I I believe that it is textually scarce to have made that decision. But I would agree that if if indeed Jesus Barabbas is what Matthew originally penned, I do not believe that it has any uh, profound change on the meaning of the text, but rather adds a dramatic flair just they they chose the wrong yeshua yeah and um the net actually includes um jesus barabbas as well and the notes daniel wallace says it doesn't make sense for them to say jesus who is called the christ in that context if if he's just pointing out barabbas or jesus it, why would they need to um and like um emphasize that i guess is what he was saying in terms of the internal evidence right uh, so uh, my my final uh, conclusions on the matter, and and if if people differ, I I understand it's it's not a there's not a lot of textual weight uh, behind it, but I still feel that it needs to be looked at. But I, I honestly um, think that scribes saw that when they were copying, and there there's been one theory that uh, there are so many Jesuses in the the verse that they, they just, um, you know, remove that to simply clarify it and give it more flow. Uh, or, or also it could have been a theological uh, decision uh, where the, the name of the Savior was given to a, a murderer. Yeah. <clears throat> where it, the more offensive reading uh, would be removed, essentially. Yeah. So, and... Um, you know, it, it's if if you're listening to this and having you know a fear about you know well did did scribes just re remove things at will and stuff? Well, that's where multifocality comes into play, and we see that you know there wasn't just one scribe with a single manuscript of Matthew. You had Matthew in many different locations being copied. So, and that that is kind of the uh, it's like a fact checker of each uh, stream. So I simply went over that one because I thought I found it interesting, and uh, it, it, a lot of people when they read the NIV they kind of like, whoa, this, I'm, 
didn't never heard this in a Easter sermon, you know. So, any final thoughts from from you on on this variant? No, I think I think you um you explained it real well. So next, we're going to talk about Mark one two, correct? Yes, and um, I'll get into why I chose this uh, particular um, reading. So, um, I'm going to read Mark one two out of the modern English version, and this is. Uh, this version came out in 2014. Um, it was um, an update to the King James Version, and it is what... So the military has gone to using this instead of the New King James, uh, and it follows the Textus Receptus. Uh, that is uh, the Byzantine text platform uh, through the 15th and 16th centuries. So it reads in Mark 1-2... Uh, as it is written in the prophets, look, I am sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in Mark 1-2 in the NASB, the New American Standard, it reads, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, for someone who's, who is uh, not familiar with the Old Testament text that Mark is quoting there, uh, they might think, uh, okay, so he said Isaiah, big deal. Well, the first Old Testament citation that is cited there is Malachi 3.1. Malachi is the last of the minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And he's the smaller prophet. And then the second citation, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So that's um, Isaiah the prophet there. Now, the reason why this is such a controversial variant um, uh, from critics of modern translations or uh, the decision of the UBS 5 or the Nestle Elan text platforms is because what they are positing is that if the modern translations render it as Isaiah the prophet, they have created a contradiction in the Bible and thus have destroyed inerrancy altogether. That's a common assertion. Uh, and I don't know if you've, have you ever uh, encountered that uh, from anyone uh, in your area? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Basically, yeah, basically, if, if there's that reading, then uh, there, there's an error here. And so the Bible is no longer errant. Yeah. So so they'll, they'll say that uh, they'll be like, you know, it, it couldn't be uh, Isaiah the prophet because uh, he would have started with a, it should say Isaiah and Malachi. It shouldn't say just Isaiah. Right. Um, and that's why they say that, you know, the prophets is a better reading. Well, uh, if we examine... The textual evidence, if we start with that on Mark 1-2, uh, we find this. So the reading for uh, Isaiah, uh, the prophets, it comes from Codex Sinaiticus, which is a 4th century uh, codex that was uh, found uh, in a monastery by Count Tischendorf. Uh, and it was the first uh, near-complete uh New Testament um, from antiquity. Up to that time, it was the oldest uh, text in existence when it was founded in, in the 1850s. 
it, it's also found in uh, Codex Vaticanus, which is uh, also a 4th century codex that's currently uh, housed in the Vatican. Uh, and it's also found in the codices uh, L, uh, Delta, uh, minuscules 33, 565, 892, 1241. And what's even interesting is it's um, found in some Syriac witnesses, some Coptic witnesses, and in the surviving text we have of um, some ch church fathers, Origen, Epiphanius, Irenaeus, they also cited that verse as um, Isaiah the prophets. Right. So it does. Now there is um, when I've researched into okay, if if prophets was the original reading, then what would have been the reason why Isaiah the prophet? Uh, reading would have came up and I have heard people honestly say well you know they just wanted to corrupt the text and my first thought is well that's that's such a poor way to do that because <laughs> if if um you know if a scribe's sitting there thinking around I want to corrupt scripture how will I do it I'm gonna put Isaiah the prophet you know it, yeah. that I really don't see how that could hold water in, in any meaningful scholarly debate. Uh, but a possible one that they say is that a scribe was ignorant of the citations and he saw the second citation and therefore he thought the first one was from Isaiah as well and he put Isaiah 40 verse 3. Here's my problem with that. If that were the case, we could probably see that in maybe one witness, uh, like with the Hebrews 2.9 reading. Uh, we, we would just find it in just, you know, like just here or there. But as we just discussed on the textual evidence, those witnesses are multi multifocal. They, they come from all different areas. So unless you're trying to say that, all of these scribes were just ignorant of Old Testament citations, and they just – all of them got it wrong. They, I, I really don't see how that could hold uh, water as well. And, and I, I would postulate that uh, most scribes, uh, Christian scribes, because we did – there were um, some uh, secular scribes who were paid to copy texts as well. I, I, I have a feeling that they, they knew their scriptures. Yeah. From copying it so uh, frivolously, uh, but um, also there, the idea that they, you know, well, maybe they, you know, work together in different locations. Well, we don't. They didn't have the internet back then. So if they're riding down to Egypt and then another guy over in mainland Europe, uh, there, there would, in order to corrupt, quote unquote, the scriptures like that in that day, I just don't see how that would be feasible. Yeah, there's just so many other portions of scripture they could have went after i mean why choose that if basically right um so but uh now it, it comes okay so why do you feel that mark 1 2 is the original reading well you know when when we talk about the inerrancy of scripture you know they we tend to force this 21st century you know microscopic uh you know, perfection on, on everything, you know, like when we write papers, we have to have, you know, like, uh, if you don't cite something properly, you're plagiarizing. Well, to hold, uh, first century uh, authors and, and even among secular historians of that day, they didn't always quote, 
um, everything exactly, and they also um, cited things differently. So we know that in some portions of Scripture, they cited the the Greek Septuagint over the Hebrew text because they were talking to Greek-speaking people. And even what's even more of an interesting phenomena is uh, in Acts 15, when uh, Luke writes uh, what uh, James spoke at the Jerusalem Council, there is a conflation of the Septuagint and the Hebrew of Amos 9 there. Hmm. So if you guys want to delve into that, you'll see that there is a conflation or, or a combining of the Greek text and the Hebrew text there. So... Uh, citation is not was not done then as it is done now. Um, what is asked is, uh, do we have another example in Scripture where a biblical writer cited a major prophet and a minor prophet at the same time, but attributed the quote to a uh, major prophet? Right. Uh, you turn with me to Romans nine twenty seven. Uh, we see that this did indeed happen um, uh, from Paul's letter. So uh, starting in verse 25, he said, As indeed he says in Hosea, so there's the minor prophet, uh, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. So that's a citation of Hosea 2.23. And then verse 26, And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That is Hosea 1.10. Here is where it gets interesting. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now, we know that Paul quoted from the Septuagint quite often. And in fact, in Romans 3, the, you know, there is none righteous, no, not one. He is not citing the Hebrew there, but the Greek in Psalms 14 for that entire section, Romans 3, 10 through 19. Right. If you want to uh, look that up in your free time. But if most Bible, um, if you have footnotes, it'll say, well, Paul is quoting Isaiah uh, 10, 22 there. Well, I, I think that they're not giving the whole story because the first Part of that citation, though the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the sea. If you go over to Hosea 1.10, what it reads is, uh, Yet the number of the children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea. If you read Isaiah 10.22, what it reads is, Right here, um, for though your people, O Israel, are as the sand of the sea. Now, those are two different Hebrew words there, people and um, children. And even in the Septuagint, uh, you see in Isaiah 10.22, uh, people, and then in Hosea 1.10, children. But the second half of the verse, yet a remnant of them shall return. So what Paul does here is he quotes the first half of uh, Hosea 1.10, and then the second half of Isaiah 10.22, but he attributes it to Isaiah. And what, why I believe he did that was because, you know, he said in verse 25, he starts with Hosea, and he's continuing along, and he quotes 
the second half of Hosea 1.10. And then in verse 27, he simply goes back to Hosea that he had already cited, but contributes the second half of the citation to Isaiah. You see what I mean? Right. He's making the connection, essentially. Right. So... Um, what what my um, what I'm uh, positing here is that Paul quotes a minor prophet and a major prophet in the same text, yet attributes the citation to the major prophet. Another thing that we didn't talk about is what were you know they didn't have translations of the Bible in their hand to walk around. They had scrolls in the synagogue, and what did the uh, the prophet section start with? It started with the major prophet Isaiah. Hmm. So because chapter and verse numbers is a later, you know, that's a modern invention, they couldn't just say, well, you know, Malachi 3.1 says this. No, they would, what what my theory is that they would remember that's found in the Isaiah scroll or or the, the uh, Isaiah codex, and then they would just cite a verse from that scroll but they knew it was found in the Isaiah scroll. Right. That's that's one theory scholars have come up with. But if if someone were to say, well, is that found anywhere else in the New Testament? I believe that Romans nine twenty seven is an example of that because, uh, as I said, the the first half of the verse it, it could not be Isaiah ten twenty two because you know people is not children. Yeah, you kind of see the transit the transition actually happening. So there's a recognition that yeah, he, he's aware that Hosea says it. It's not like he erred. And then of course you see him saying, "Well, and I, um, Isaiah also cries out." So there's that um, that connection being made for you, and you have it naturally flows really whenever you think about it. Right. Um, so it, it's we to to force this uh, 21st century citation methodology onto first century biblical authors, I think, is not only unfair, but that's that, that's very anachronistic uh, yeah. to, to think that. Uh, and we have a tendency to do that. But in regards to Mark one, two, I think that the Isaiah prophet reading is sound, but it does require you to explain you know, first century citation and also showing that, yes, there were other biblical authors that did that, such as Paul in Romans 9.27. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, that was that was a good example. Um, I honestly never considered Romans 9.27 in parallel with Mark 1.2. But, of course, I had forgotten that that was a variant until you brought it up. I was like, oh, wait, I know this one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, and, it, and that, uh, to be honest, uh, I have found that 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 is one of the very, very um, controversial ones. Hmm. But all it just takes is just, uh, OK, so how how do you believe that that quote unquote corrupted reading came about? And we discuss the different possibilities and why I don't think that those are viable. Right. And, and just first century citation methods well so. and, and those who are who are skeptical and and critical of modern translations they simply just they they don't want to hear explanations they don't want to sit down and think about it and for the most part if if we're being uh blunt here and in terms of the next variant we should probably pick one uh to close us out okay. and then we, right. we're gonna have to have you back on the show though because this is this is awesome i'm sure everyone's gonna enjoy it this is probably gonna be a two-parter uh right here but i yeah, it's really so awesome. If I had to choose, then I I think Romans thirteen nine. Would Somehow be I knew a, you'd say that. Sorry. I, I knew you were gonna pick Romans. Yeah, 
Um, so I, I have written uh, about this one, and this is, again, this is another one that is very controversial when people come across this. Uh, so um, could you read, do you have a, a Textus Receptus translation in front of you? Um, well, I have the Tyndale, but I'm not going to try to read that right now. Let me see. Hang on. Um, you know what? I, I don't have one right here. Okay, I'll I'll read um I'll read Romans thirteen nine out of the uh, MEV, and then you can read Romans thirteen nine out of the ESV. All right, that so, sounds good. Um, Romans thirteen nine reads: For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, uh, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments are summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And could you read that out of the ESV? Yeah. So for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I apologize, by the way, for the mowing in the background. <laughs> uh, I, I can't I can't hear it from here. Oh, wow. Uh, it's loud out here. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> So um, let me pull up. Whoops. So the variant is on. We're looking at you should not bear false witness, I believe. Correct. So there here. Here's what's often. Again, this is a common, you know, thing like um, <laughs> I heard a person explain that all oh, the. They removed that so that they could remove their guilt for hacking up the scriptures at will. Oh, my gosh. And so my, my first <laughs> response is, okay, so why didn't they attack Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, Matthew 19? Right. You know, or any other place where it says, you know, you shall not lie as a Christian. Why, why, just, the, why just the one? And then you'll hear, well, you know, Satan mixes uh, truth with error and, well, you know, but that— that's just rhetoric. That's not an argument. Uh, so, um, again, the question is asked, did scribes sit there, you know, and just remove that so that they could just make wholesale changes and not feel guilt? Uh, and my answer is, of course not. So, um, once again, we'll just start with the textual evidence. Uh, so, in uh, Romans 13.9, uh, here's now. Here's what's rather interesting about this. Uh, so the variant is pseudo martyricize, pseudo meaning false, and martyricize being a, a witness. So you know we know pseudo from pseudonym, pseudoscience. That it, it, right. that is Greek in origin. So that reading is found in. Here's what's interesting. It's the original of Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it, it is also found in uh, Codex Peripherianus, um, some uh, minuscules like um, uh, 1505, 1506. Uh, it's found in the Vulgate Clementine of the Medieval Ages, the Syriac, and some Boharic witnesses. So there is some good attestation there, too, uh, that um, you shall not bear false witness reading. Yeah. Now, for the... For the um, the omission of that, the evidence for that is P46, which is a second or a, a codex dated to about 200 AD uh, that contains uh, all of Paul's epistles except for uh, like Philemon, Second Thessalonians, I think. 
Um, and that's the earliest manuscript we have of Paul's letters. It does not have uh, You Shall Not Bear False Witness. Um, it's also found in a Codex Alexandrinus, which is a 5th century codex, uh, Codex Vaticanus. Um, the codices uh, DFGL, um, the Greek letters Psi. Uh, some minuscules, uh, 1739, 1881, uh, 1739 is often uh, said to have much weight because we have um, determined that it is a copy of a very, very ancient text um, just based on the readings it has. Uh, and then uh, what's even more interesting, we take into account um, uh, some church fathers that uh, Ambrose Aster and Clement uh, cited this uh, with, without it. So uh, that, that is the textual evidence. So once we uh, lay that out, uh, then we look at the internal evidence here. So then we would say, okay, so what's the context? Romans 13, of course, is about subject being subject to authorities. You know, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You know, they're given by God. God sets up kings and takes them down. Right. Uh, and as Christians, we are commanded to be responsible law-abiding citizens because uh god has established those in place the only time we go against that is if they command us to do anything contrary to god's law but uh for you know the vast majority of the laws in our country we're not called to be rebels we're called to be law-abiding citizens right uh, and then it starts you know in verse six uh, for this reason, you also pay taxes, for they are God's servants, um, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So, we, just to, to kind of briefly summarize the context, uh, we have, you know, submission to governing authorities because they're established by God. Paying your taxes, you know, that's Jesus' commandment. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Uh, and then we finally get into um, verse 8, which says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves uh, another has fulfilled the law. Now we get into back into our verse here. So Paul mentions a series of commandments here to make a point. <clears throat> he, um, and what, here's what's even more interesting. He only cites the second half of the table. Notice that there, there is... Um, Commandments 1 through 4 are not mentioned here. Right. And also, he's not giving... You know, Paul could have made Romans uh, 1,100 pages long if he wanted to just list every commandment God ever gave. But what I think that Paul is doing is he's just simply making a generic list of commandments. Because if you notice, what's, what's one commandment missing in the second half of the table? The fifth uh, commandment is absent. Right. You shall honor your father and mother. That's not in there. So he's now, if if uh, you shall not bear false witness is original, he's only citing six through ten. Right. So uh, why not include both of them, or one or the other instead of if you're going to charge with one of them being absent? Why why aren't both of them included? I guess so to speak. Right. So um, what my theory is is that when a scribe was copying uh, these this text. You know, he's going through, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Like, oh, I know what comes next. You, know, you shall not give, uh, you shall not bear false witness. Because, you know, like in, let's say, you know, the scribe, like he was taught, you know, the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, which, you know, most people are, and they have them memorized. Uh, 
And so they know what comes next. Right. So a scribe, you know, puts this in and then this this gets transmitted out and that gets copied down through the ages to our day. So but then you have um, these others that don't. And if that is if the omission is the original, uh, one thing that will often be asked is, uh, well, if you take out uh, you shall not bear false witness, uh, it throws the order off because it's it's missing uh, number the ninth commandment. But if you look at the list of the Ten Commandments, what's interesting, uh, you shall not commit adultery is number seven. Right. And then it goes, you shall not kill. That's number six. So even Paul is not listing them in order. So it goes seven, six, eight. If if it's if uh, you shall not bear false witness is original. So it goes seven, six, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> so Paul doesn't even list them in order here. So the omission doesn't throw off the order at all. Um, then uh, it was asked, um, so what, what was Paul trying to get at here? Well, if you look at uh, how the verse ends, and if there be any other commandments, his goal is not to make you know every commandment we have to follow as Christians, but rather... Love your neighbor as yourself leads us to keep the second half of the, the table, which is our relationships uh, to man. Right. Stealing, bearing false witness, that, that's damaging to fellow image bearers. So Paul, what I believe, Paul is simply, uh, the context is, I'm just going to cite a, a, a generic list of commandments and then make my point stating that love works no evil to a neighbor because love is fulfillment of the law. Because if we have love, we're going to love our neighbor and our brother, our family, and do good to them and not evil. Well, and I'm kind of, this may be, I, I honestly haven't thought of this too, too much, I guess. Um, but in the context of uh, going or living underneath the authorities um, and abiding by what they say, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. And these particular commandments seem to be all sociological, um, where they could dramatically affect the society around you, and they have implications on how uh, the governing authorities would um, reprimand you, so to speak. While you can bear false witness about someone, and that's not going to get you in particular trouble, or uh, so to, or the same thing with honoring your father and mother. That's not going to be something that impl- um, impacts the society around you, so to speak. So I don't know if that's necessarily a connection or a contextual issue there, but that seems to be something that I can see there where um, in the society, these things would be sociologically um, more prominent, I guess, so to speak. But I'm not entirely sure. And that's something I I think that that um, is a valid point there. So it it is, you know, in in, um, Romans 12, that... um, Verses 9 to 21, we call that, you know, the the Christianity 101. Right. And then that goes into, so if we, you know, uh, follow that, that's going to lead, that's going to have a massive impact in how we um, relate to our fellow image bearers in society, even the unbelieving ones. Right. But, but his ultimate goal here was not to just establish a, a, a comprehensive list of commandments but his whole point was that 
love is fulfillment of the law because love enables us to keep uh, the law of God that was given to us. It was not, you know, ah, scribe, you know, I don't like that. I want to hack up the scriptures at will, so I'm going to take that out so I don't, you know, feel guilt. God didn't originally write that. No, that's that that's nonsense. Yeah. It, um, and and if if that is the original, then it still just doesn't uh, impact the text either. Well, yeah, because it, that Paul's goal, and it would still be missing a commandment. So no matter which way you you kind of cut it, there there's really not a way to justify saying, well, you know, Paul, or there's an error here, or they're just trying to corrupt the text because uh, contextually, the there's two commandments that aren't in there, and like you said, the whole first half of the Ten Commandments. There's just so many different factors that say, no, that's not what Paul was trying to do here. Right, um, and so the the reason why I I um, shared this one is because it's also a, a controversial one uh, today. But uh, the the reason why uh, me and Nick wanted to to get into this is because these are if you're having Bible study and you're going to have you know variances in translations, I have seen Bible studies come to a screeching halt because someone just was so flabbergasted by a difference in translation here. Yep, yep. And that's simply, if if you, the listener, encounter that and you are armed with this knowledge, you can, in, with love and grace, say, you know, sir, ma'am, uh, can we take a look at this? Can we can we examine the facts? You know, and, and we can still, you know, say that, this does not affect the inerrancy of the Word of God because the message here is not about lying; it's about loving our neighbor. So, yeah, it um, it, it's just uh, one of those things that I I wish more Christians were armed with because there's just been so much unnecessary confusion and misinformation that I I have seen people's faiths wrecked over this. And I don't believe that needs to be the case. Uh, but also on the flip side of that, I don't want listeners to hear this and go on to social media and just start using knowledge as a club to beat people senselessly over the head with. Right. Th- this is for you, the listener, to trust what you have in your hand and should someone bring up a false assertion, as we have mentioned, you can, you know, say, um, wait a minute, and then uh, give your counter rebuttal and be, as Peter said, uh, always ready with the defense. And to add on to that, I hope that listeners can kind of hear all this. And after Nate amazingly laid out all the information on all the facts about the manuscripts and the variants and uh, what we have, I hope that you can look at your scripture and just be in amazement of God and how he works in history and how he does preserve his word, because it really is an amazing thing. And it makes you look at your Bible a little bit more, um, more seriously, because God took the time to orchestrate this to where it's perfectly laid out to where we can have assurance of his word. And we can have assurance that he is working in history and that he is working through erroneous men to accomplish his will. And he does it perfectly every time. And I think that's something that we should all remember. Yeah, um, I I don't think I could have said it better. But um, with my closing remark, uh, I just want to say that whether you use uh, the King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, the Geneva, Tyndale, the Modern English Version, or any other version that follows the 
Byzantine or Textus Receptus platform, or if you uh, prefer to read uh, NASB, ESV, and, and maybe in a future episode we could talk about you know translations that are rather subpar, but re- you know reliable word-for-word modern translations such as those, you're not going to find a different gospel. You're not going to find the deity of Christ missing. You're not going to find the Trinity absent. You're, you're going to find the virgin birth. You, you're going to find everything that I, I believe God had breathed out um, it, once we examine the textual evidence that we have left uh, surviving. My point is that I want Christians to recognize that they can trust what they have in their hand to read it, to memorize it, to know the gospel, proclaim it to the nations, and live by it and grow in grace and holiness. Uh, but knowing the experience, knowing how we got the Bible, um, it, it just truly is a miracle how all those manuscripts survived fires and wars and persecution. Yeah. And we only have to deal with less than a percent of meaningful and viable variants. So I truly believe that God uh, kept his promise when he said that he, the word of God endures forever. So yeah, that's my final statement on the matter. I hope that, you know, listeners to listeners find this reassuring or perhaps maybe you didn't have answers and now you do. So, yeah, and we'll definitely have to have you, have you back on the show. Cause I, I can think of, several topics I would love to have you on for. Um, so thank you, thank you for taking the time and we'll have to get you back on. I think this is going to be, uh, this is going to be really beneficial for everyone who listens. Uh, yeah, uh, God willing, um, people, uh, you know, and maybe you're far beyond me. Uh, and it was, and it was just a reinforcing of what you already know. Uh, so, um, Again, like if uh, you, if anyone is listening has questions, we're you know available on Instagram, Twitter, um, and we would love to be able to. Or if you have disagreements, we would love to hear uh, disagreements to our conclusions that we came on the matter. So, um, yeah, Nick, I'm sure you'll let me know if you get any, if you get any hate mail or you know polite and calm disagreements. Uh, yeah. We could examine those as well. Yeah, we could definitely do that. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or input, go ahead and email me. And even if it's addressed to Nate, I can get it to him. Um, I don't know. And we'll figure that all out. But yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yep. Um, well, uh, I believe that that's all we had planned for today. But uh, I feel like we definitely covered a lot of ground. Yes, uh, sir. I, I just I ran on limited notes, so I hope I didn't stumble over my words too much. No, no, it was awesome, awesome. Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks for uh, having me on, Nick. Uh, if you know listeners out there, I definitely recommend his show. Uh, he's covered a lot of great topics um, like uh, sola scriptura and, and reformed theology. Um, soteriology uh, things of that nature wide variety of topics and it's you know definitely not surface level stuff so if you definitely want to go deeper i would definitely recommend um subscribing to crisis the cure 
I appreciate that. Thank you. So I think the listeners can benefit much from this episode. It was great having Nathan on, and we I guarantee we're going to have him on again because it, it really is a blessing to talk to him every time, and he handles things with grace and uh, precision. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like you said, if you want to contact us and uh, have some things discussed on a show at a later time, let me know. And we'll be picking up our theology series after this episode, and we'll be going into inspiration and fallibility of the scriptures. And so that'll be good. God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.